Well, as we were talking this week about our Expositor Seminary emphasis, I was talking to a number of different people about what uh, my heart was for you as a church to understand about what we do with training men in this church. It is some, sometimes behind the scenes and invisible, and sometimes more visible, but as I was sharing with more and more people uh, the things that uh, I just really hoped and longed for you to understand... Uh, I was preparing comments uh, for our, our, our men as they were going to come, and the comments uh, turned from a few sentences to a paragraph, from, from a paragraph to a couple paragraphs, and from a couple paragraphs into a sermon. That's the way it happens, my wife can tell you. But I wanted to spend some time this morning uh, trying to frame our thoughts around the importance of this ministry. It is something we don't talk about enough from the pulpit, but something that you may or may not realize, is uh, interwoven into a lot of what we do here as a church, and, and very intentionally so, because it is uh, God's design, I believe, that we as a body of Christ be engaged in raising up leaders. That's been lost on the church over the last couple of hundred years, as churches have outsourced that that. Uh, Uh, duty to institutions that have cropped up. We call them seminaries, and they're often in far distant cities, uh, far away from our visible eye and far away from our ongoing influence. But before that, ministers were trained within the church, and that was the appropriate way to do it because it is an extension of a church's ministry to be training men. We could... We could talk about that from a number of passages. We could establish that role and design by just looking, for example, at a very basic level at Matthew 28 and the Great Commission and the mandate that's been given to us to make disciples, teaching people to obey all that Christ has commanded us. That mandate obviously begins in many cases with initial gospel conversations, attempts to invite people to Christ, but discipleship doesn't stop there. And the Great Commission doesn't stop there. The Great Commission extends all the way through in the full range of discipleship. Discipleship at its most basic level and even discipleship at its highest level. That is the mandate of the church. The ultimate uh, result of that is the production of leaders and leaders who in turn produce uh, churches who will in turn equip their own people to obey the Lord's command. That's why... Even in our missions philosophy, we're very much engaged with ministries which train nationals in countries wherever they are to plant churches to raise up disciples. So there's a sense in which to fulfill the Great Commission, we need to think about the full extent of raising up leaders who'll be able to teach others also. We could talk about it then from Matthew 28, or we could go to the pastoral epistles and the number of passages there where the Apostle Paul emphasizes the necessity of raising up leaders. Several references in First and Second Timothy and Titus to the example that Timothy was to follow, the example that had been set for him by the apostles and the example that he himself was to set. We could look very specifically at what we saw this morning, the all-important mandate in 2 Timothy 2, that what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
very clear mandate, not just to teach others, but to train others who will be able to teach. To train up teachers who will carry out the pattern of teaching. We could talk about Paul's example of where he left behind in each churches a trainer of men. He did it with Timothy in Ephesus. He did it with Titus in Crete. He says, that's why I left you in Crete, that you might put in order what remains and appoint elders, appoint leaders. And in many ways, you could highlight this commitment to training leaders, which ought to be the part of every growing and thriving ministry. You could look to the scripture, you could see a legacy of godly men from the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament apostles uh, committed to reproducing leaders in the next generation. And that, in many ways, is sufficient. Just those examples and those mandates. That's in, in some ways why so much of what we do is focused on training. You see our elders doing it, engaged in training other men, each of them meeting with men individually, trying to train them up in doctrine, trying to train them up in godliness, trying to train them up for the next generation. You see us doing it in things like our annual biblical counseling and discipleship conference. You see it through the classes we offer in training institutes, the the, the conferences that we give. You see it even here in hosting a campus of Expositor Seminary. So much of what we do is training. Because we feel like so many of the scriptures that I've referenced continually urge us to strive in those areas. And these are the kinds of things that we believe contribute to a healthy church. There are so many passages that we could go to that would drive us in that direction. But this morning I wanted to briefly look at one that I think perhaps is as great an example as any of training, and that's the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The passage is Luke chapter 5, and it is a well-known passage of our Lord calling into a special relationship with himself, his early disciples. And if anyone sets a pattern for us of training others, it would be our Lord Jesus Christ. It would be him who had so many other responsibilities, who had so many lost people to reach, so many sick people to heal, so many people who needed teaching and training. He had so many responsibilities going on in his life, so much that he could give his time and his efforts to, but central to so much of what he did, and you see it reflected over and over again, was this issue of training men, the ones that he called alongside of himself. This is what we read in Luke chapter 5 of his early efforts. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out in them and were washing their nets. Getting into the one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done, excuse me, my pages stuck together. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. 
They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help him. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. This is a... This is a special time in Jesus' life, calling alongside of himself these men. A lot of background that goes into it and a lot of story that follows it, but this contains some important lessons for us in the way the Lord went about training men in the context of his ministry. And we could just take note of a few things from this passage that helps us understand what... um, training men was like for Jesus. The first would be simply in verses 1 through 3, three, the context of the crowd. The context of the crowd. We're told that Jesus came to the lake to teach and the crowds were pressing in on him. They were pushing him and pushing him. And, and so standing here by the lake of Gennesaret, he is at the height of his popularity, we might say, There is so much demand on his time, so much demand for his teaching, so much hunger to hear the word of God. Here is Jesus having taught for just a little while in Judea and seeing his ministry explode and the crowds are enormous, probably uh, uh, numbering in the thousands. And here he is having gone down to this sloping beach because it would have provided probably the best acoustics for such a large crowd, but, but, but he couldn't accommodate them just simply on the seashore. So he, he goes and he takes one of the boats that was sitting by. He happened to know the fishermen. Boats belonged to Simon and James and John. He had eaten at their house already. If you were to back up into chapter 4 in verses 38 and 39, you see that he had already become acquainted with these men He'd already been in their home. He'd already had a meal with them. They'd already experienced his ministry. And these were the men who were all partners in this little fishing business. They were there doing their work that day, not necessarily there as a part of the crowd listening to the lessons, but out there trying to make a living. They had been fishing all night. Now they had gathered their boats together. They were washing their nets. These nets would have been strung alongside of their boats, these big, thick Linen nets, not like our synthetic nets today. They would have been uh, all tangled up with uh, uh, material and debris from being dragged along the bottom of the lake. And it would have been an enormous duty to clean them and to repair the breaks in the linen fiber. And Jesus calls these men uh, to borrow their boat in the midst of this crowd But it isn't just that. He doesn't just borrow their boat, but he has intentions. He has plans, no doubt. As we'll see as we go on in the passage, this was not any mere coincidental circumstance. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was making an inroad into their life because he had a purpose for them in calling them. And I find it interesting, as somebody who knows the, the busyness of ministry and the, 
uh, rigors of the schedule of a pastor, I find it interesting that Jesus here in the midst of the height of his popularity, probably the busiest time in his life, that he still finds it a priority and he still finds it a a necessary part of his life that he's not going to only teach the crowds, but he's going to invest in the middle of his ministry, in the middle of everything that he's doing, he's going to invest in these men and important spiritual lessons that he wants to teach them. Which kind of brings us to the second point in the passage that we need to take note of, which is the command to fish. We see that beginning in verse 4, after he has done his teaching, we're told that he says to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now just put yourself in the place of Peter, a professional fisherman with a, a moderately successful business now, who's being told by a carpenter how to fish. Not only that, he's being told by a carpenter the wrong way to fish, because he knows, Peter knows, that you don't fish in the middle of the day, especially with the big, thick linen nets that you have, because in the daylight, the, sun, the, 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 the fish would uh, be able to see the nets clearly in the water, they would avoid the nets, and so they understood and they practiced, and the text indicates here that they fish at night. And so they had already gotten up in the early wee morning hours and gone out before the sun had ever risen so that they could have the best opportunity of catching fish. They had caught nothing even though they worked all night. But Peter knows that the technique of this carpenter is a useless endeavor. And yet, probably out of deference for the popular teacher, he nevertheless does it. He tells him, Lord, we've fished all night. We haven't caught anything, but, you know, at your word, we'll do it. He reluctantly listens. He casts his net and he hauls in such a big catch that the nets begin to break, the boats begin to sink. He has to motion to his partners, James and John, who are still on the shore washing their nets to come. And it's obvious from the story as you go along that Jesus isn't here trying to increase their business productivity. He isn't here trying to teach them any new fishing techniques. He isn't trying to change their daily schedule. He isn't trying to line their pockets. He's demonstrating to Peter a powerful lesson about obedience. A lesson about what the Lord is looking for in his leaders. A lesson that in obeying the commands of Jesus, skill and expertise, and to some extent even experience, are not the primary factors. Jesus would go on to call Peter to a task that no one in the world would ever have qualified him for. The leadership, along with the other apostles of this global movement of fishing for men. But the first lesson Peter had to learn is that being a fisherman in God's plan has nothing to do with your skill, nothing to do with your expertise, nothing to do with, like I said, even your experience. Skill and capability, in other words, are not high on the criteria 
in the selection process of leaders. Most, if not all, of Jesus' disciples had little education, probably no distinction in their religious training beyond what we might consider Sunday school. In fact, one of the things that vexed the Pharisees and the Sadducees later on as the church began to explode with power across Israel was that Jesus had not dipped into their ranks, into the ranks of the Uh, the world of the religiously astute into their well-trained pool of disciples, into into their well-educated group of men. In fact, when the disciples were called before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, the leaders of Israel, Luke tells us, understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, untrained in the sense of their standards. You add to that the fact that these were unconnected men, apart from John and James, they appeared to have no real political, social, religious connection. John and James had some sort of connection to the family of the high priest, but none of the other men apparently did. They were, I should say, a thoroughly unimpressive group by worldly standards. They had no clout. They showed little promise to anyone. They had little experience in really organizing anything beyond their little fishing trips each morning. Apparently had no experience in public speaking. They were ordinary men. The, the, The success that they had at business would have been moderate or maybe in the case of Matthew, who was a tax gatherer, it would have been manufactured. He would have been among those tax gatherers who had accumulated much of their wealth, no doubt, by very heavy-handed, maybe even unethical methods. They were undistinguished, anonymous, common And yet, there's never been a task in the history of the world that equaled what these men would be called to. Because on them, Jesus says he'll build the church. Ephesians 2 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. These were the men that the Lord chose as his primary agents in the establishment and the advancement of his kingdom. And they were used to have an impact unlike any other in the world, extraordinarily turning the world upside down, even though they were ordinarily talented. They were not supernatural in the world's eyes, but they were made that way by God. They had all kinds of limitations and failures and, and uh, uh, things that would detract from them, yet they surrendered themselves to God who glorified himself through their weaknesses. So Peter had to learn. He had to learn this lesson, that when God calls you to a task, a task of fishing for men, it's no different than when he calls you to fish for fish. It doesn't require an inordinate amount of skill. It doesn't even take some supernatural knowledge. What it takes is obedience. Just men who are willing to obey what the Lord commands. 
In fact, sometimes it is in spite of your training, in spite of your skill. You may very well be skilled in some area. You might have an abundance of knowledge in some area, but the Lord is about humbling you in your knowledge. The Lord is about bringing you to a place of not trusting in your skill. Jesus could have called Peter simply enough to follow him, but he deliberately sends him on this hopeless fishing expedition to provide a graphic picture in Peter's mind of just what Jesus is saying when he says, from now on, you'll be fishing, you'll be catching men. An incredible demonstration of God's power working through weakness. This was Peter's first great lesson in Jesus' call in his life. He was never to begin to feel that any time the Lord used him for some great catch of men, that it was a result of his expertise, his knowledge. He was always to remember that it was the Lord's sovereign power that controlled all of these events. It wasn't Peter's skill, it wasn't his experience, it wasn't his personality, it wasn't his anything personal from him. The only thing that could have taught him this was to see in the midst of all of his own weakness, the Lord working. It's, by the way, a lesson not only for the first apostles, not only for those chosen for leadership by him, it's a lesson for all and any who want to be used by the Lord, that many times it is uh, in an effort to trounce our self-dependency that the Lord uses us. It's in an effort to make more clear to us our deficiencies, that the Lord is preparing us. It's not in, not in those uh, routes and those pathways that establish our excellence. It's not in those pathways that set us up for the praise of men, but in many ways it is in those times of failure that the Lord is most greatly preparing us. I have to remember that myself. Sometimes whenever I'm fearful to cast the net, if you will, to really obey the Lord in sharing my faith or speaking to others about the gospel, I have to remember that it's really not ultimately up to me and to my skill and to my uh, ability to persuade. It's really just up to my obedience. Speaking and opening my lips for the glory of Christ. We sometimes think that if we do all the right things, if we create the right environment, if we have our presentation of the truth manufactured in just the right way with all the correct uh, uh, I's dotted and T's crossed, all the questions uh, anticipated and answered that might come against us, if we have all of this stuff together, that that's the time the Lord uses us. That's not the case. He uses us in season and out of season. When it's time to fish and when it's not time to fish. He uses us. This is what he was teaching Peter. He simply needs men who are obedient. Who are submissive. Which takes us to our next point. And Peter's reaction in verse 8. Which is a cry of contrition. 
a cry of contrition. You see that amazingly. When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, if you just read the story in isolation from the rest of the book of Luke, that might seem a pretty strange reaction to you. Peter just witnessed a miracle. It didn't seem like any particularly threatening miracle. But Peter apparently feels exposed. He feels like his sinfulness is being exposed. He feels like he has to cry out with some word of repentance and some word of contrition. Well, why is that? Well, first of all, you need to recognize, as I said earlier, this is not Peter's first encounter with Jesus. He had already encountered him back in verse 38 of chapter 4. He had witnessed the healing of his own mother-in-law in his house. Miraculous healing. And, and from that, in verses 40 through 41, he was there as he witnessed the healing of many people in Capernaum. In fact, we're told by Matthew that Peter became a little bit of a vocal leader among that group in begging Jesus to stay with them. So he had already experienced and shown enthusiasm for Jesus' ministry. There was already history, we're told, even here in Luke's Gospel. Peter had seen miracles before, but... But even those miracles, they didn't elicit this kind of response. But if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me over to John for just a moment. Because there's context from other Gospels, I think, that help frame in our minds what's going on here. John chapter 1, verse 35. We're told this comes shortly after Jesus was baptized. In fact, the next day after his baptism, this was, we might say, his very first day of public ministry. Jesus uh, didn't engage in public ministry until after his baptism. He was somewhat unknown and undisclosed to John the Baptist and to everyone else. He's baptized, we're told, in the first uh, few verses of John. And we come to verse 35, it says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples who heard him say this, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard him, uh, heard John speak and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is called, or I should say, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found the one of whom Moses in in the law and also in the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael came to him, can anything good, said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Now Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw saw you. 
Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So here you have, in the first couple of days of Jesus' ministry, Before the crowds were even gathering, before he ever went to Peter's house, before he ever healed his mother-in-law, before he ever healed the people in the city, he saw Peter and he called him to come and follow me. It was his initial call, we might say, to, to follow, maybe even his initial call to salvation, but an extended call, I believe, even beyond that, to come and walk with Jesus, to be with Him where He is. Go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Matthew chapter 4, we find a similar account. Beginning in verse 18, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew's brother, casting a net in the sea, and they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Notice the differences between this and Luke. No crowds. No teaching. Just Jesus walking along the seashore. And here they are, Jesus calling them again. All of this explains why in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus shows up to teach, he seems so familiar with these men, enough so that he could ask them to borrow their boat, to push out a little bit from the sea. Sure, so that he could teach. So Peter had so much previous contact with Jesus. He had seen miracles. He had heard teaching. But this time, when he sees it, he falls down at Jesus' knees. And he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Why is that? I think it's guilt. I think at least in part, this is Peter's guilt. Why? Because Jesus had already issued to him at least one time, maybe twice, he had already issued him a call to come and follow me. He had already told him, to leave the things that he was doing, to leave his fishing, to leave his nets, to leave his boat, to leave all those distractions and to come spend time with Jesus. And I think what we have in Luke chapter 4, or I know what we have, is not the first encounter with Jesus, maybe the second, maybe the third encounter with Jesus, where Jesus has been calling him and calling him and calling him. And for whatever reason, uh, Peter while he might have initially stepped away and followed Jesus, he might have initially stepped, if you might say, into Jesus' training program, for whatever reason, he went back to his old endeavors. And now, here in Luke chapter 4, you have Jesus coming, you know, coincidentally, and and happening to teach the crowds right 
beside Peter's boat. Because he had a purpose. The purpose was to call Peter one more time. By the way, it's not the end. Because if you were to turn over to the book of John in 21 and find the end of that chapter and read it, you'd find a post-resurrection event where the disciples, if you remember, had abandoned Jesus in his time of betrayal, in his crucifixion, in his dark hour. They had doubted his resurrection. Peter himself had denied Jesus three times. And in John 21, what do we find? We find them fishing. John 21, 3 says they were fishing all night and they had caught nothing. And while they were still out in the water, Jesus sees them and he tells them to cast their net on the right side of their boat. And they take in so many fish, the nets begin to break. The boats begin to sink. It was the sight of this miracle that John and Peter immediately recognize this is Jesus, their master. Peter jumps into the water, swims to the shore. We know the story. Jesus once again calls him back into the training process. And he tells him three times, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Clearly, the miracle of fish, whether it's in Luke 4 or John 21, it's a message about their mission, a lesson about their ministry. And here in Luke 5, Jesus is drawing that lesson out for Peter, who had stepped away from the training for whatever reason. And now he's broken by his waywardness. He's humbled by his lack of faith. Maybe he's fearful of what the demand is in his life and what he's been unwilling to do. Maybe he's just ashamed of his forgetfulness or consumed with his his own lust and greed. Whatever it is, he is struck to the heart when he realizes the lesson that's put in front of him, that the Lord has called him to a powerful ministry and he has disobeyed. And nevertheless, the Lord says to him there in Luke chapter 5, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. Now some people might consider it an unfortunate diversion They might look at all this and say, you know what? If Peter just would get his act together, if he would just, you know, uh, set aside whatever his fleshly weaknesses are or whatever, an unfortunate diversion in the process of the Lord's training, but I don't know if it's a diversion so much as it's part of the training. I think Jesus understood the necessity of the lesson Because for whatever reason, when the Lord first called Peter, Peter didn't have this response. He wasn't so overwhelmed with the weight of responsibility or with the lack of his own resources. 
He didn't have this kind of contrition. He didn't have this sense of his own unworthiness. But now he did. And now the Lord has him right where the Lord wants him. Where every man in preparation for ministry needs to be. And when he reached that point of brokenness, when he reached that point at the bottom of seeing just how all of his skills and all of his knowledge were not really what the Lord was after. He was really just after a humble, submissive heart. When he reached that point of seeing his weakness, it was the next step in the process. That kind of contrition doesn't happen, unfortunately, in a snap. It takes time. It takes experience in weaknesses. It takes going through life together. It encourages me whenever I read that, you know, as a guy who is always shrinking back sometimes from what the Lord would have me to do and sometimes not following through. I don't know, maybe misery loves company, weakness, failure loves company. I'm encouraged to know that the Lord had so much patience with Peter as he worked on him in teaching him about ministry. But it teaches us... uh, an important lesson in Jesus' approach to training leaders. And that's that failure, failure does not negate your call. God is so very patient with us through our weaknesses. In fact, He wants us to see them. He knows it's a painful process for us to go through, to have to come face to face with them. He wants us to see our weaknesses as clearly as he does. And so he is patient through this process, through our failures, even with our inconsistent commitment to him, our inconsistent commitment to our calling. When for whatever reason, it wasn't clear in our minds or in our lives And then eventually we have to come face to face with our weaknesses. He just patiently comes alongside of us in calling them out and in restoring us. Sometimes we need that as the Lord is preparing us. Sometimes the students here at Expositors need that. They need opportunity for failure. They need opportunity to see their weaknesses. And sometimes their weaknesses are going to be exposed in front of some of us. And it isn't our place to pounce on them and say, you know what, that guy, he's useless. You know, he's got no place in the Lord's church or in the future. It isn't our place to just jump on this and say, you know what, the guy, he's obviously not called to ministry. He can't teach his way out of a paper bag. You know, he doesn't really know how to counsel people. He lost his temper in this uh, situation or whatever it might be. It isn't our place that the moment we see a man's weaknesses that we just pounce on him. It is our place, just as it was the Lord's place, to come alongside of them and their weakness and realize this is a process. And the, the issue is not that their weaknesses are exposed. It is how they respond when they are exposed. What you see here is Peter's contrition. Falling at the Lord's knees and saying, Lord, 
Depart from me. I'm not worth the effort. It's a great place to be. When you think that you are worth the effort, when you think that the church revolves around you, when you think the ministry revolves around you, you're not really prepared to be his type of leader. There would be other failures. There would be dullness of understanding. Luke 18, Jesus trying to explain to them the crucifixion. And Luke says they didn't understand what he was saying. And they didn't grasp any of these things. The lack of humility in Mark 9. Jesus is walking on the road and hears them whispering behind him. He turns around and says, what are you talking about? And they wouldn't say a word because they were debating. They were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Which one of them was the smartest. Which one of them was deserving of more glory. They had weak commitment, as we know, in the hour of Jesus' intense trial when he was betrayed by Judas and captured by the Romans. All of his disciples fled and abandoned him. But Jesus knew that leadership needs to be brought through its own failures in order to be prepared for what is ahead. We need an environment where, with an abundance of grace, men can fail, men can see their weaknesses, and they can be dealt with in the context of expositors, that's the context of a loving body of Christ, uh, who can pray for these men and come alongside them and encourage them through the trials of their life. That's why we believe so strongly in training men in the context of the local church, in a place, in an environment where the men are already known and they're already loved and their families are loved. These men will sometimes, as I said, disappoint you. Jesus' disciples disappointed him, but, but he understood that it was a simply a necessary part of the process, which kind of leads to our last point this morning in verse 11, the call to follow. Luke simply says, when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. It's not the first time. We already saw that in Matthew chapter 4. It won't be the last time. We saw that in John 21. But this was a significant time when these men left their industry of fishing to go into this process, not to attend one class one night a week or one day a week. It wasn't an invitation to read a book together. This was an invitation to do life together. It's one of our final lessons from Jesus' training ministries that, that ministry training takes time. It involves... The, the exposure of our weaknesses, but it's also a process that just takes time. It takes time for those weaknesses to rise to the surface, to see how much someone needs the Lord, to be put in various contexts, to see certain things exposed that can be worked on. It also just simply takes time to be exposed to different kinds of ministry, to see all the different things that take place in a church, in the the life of a body, a process to go through and to think through all of the issues that are a part of the demands in the life of the church, to have time to help in organizing, in conflict resolution, in doing some teaching, and in being involved with missions, and learning how to pray. And it takes a process even in teaching them. Because while the Lord 
wasn't looking for men who were well-educated in the world. He understood that before he sent them out into the world, they would certainly need to be trained. They would certainly need to be taught. And so while their entrance into his school required no extraordinary skill or background in education, the process of his school was an intense time of teaching, every day sitting at the feet of Jesus. He'd spend much of the next two years investing in them. It's amazing when you read through the Gospels, as I said earlier, with everything that went on in the life of Jesus Christ, with all the people who needed to be reached, all the people who needed to be evangelized, all the people who needed to be healed, all the people who needed to be taught, with all the demands that were on him, he still made it a priority to speak to and spend time with this select group of men. He called them alongside of himself to follow him. On more than one occasion, it would be inconvenient. They would try to interfere with his plans. They would try to prevent children from coming to him. They would try to call down fire on people who needed to hear the truth. They would be arguing and disagreeing with Jesus, rebuking him. It wasn't the most convenient thing, but it was obviously a priority for him. And he calls them alongside of himself to watch and listen and observe and learn. John MacArthur says, much can be learned from the classroom, but spiritual growth comes best from close contact with holy examples. A consistently pure life that is patient, loving, reverent, and that has peace of heart and mind is an unmatched tutor for godly living. To hear a godly person talk to others, pray to God, to see Him act and react, to feel His heartbeat for the Lord and for His church, is to be trained in the best of schools. End quote. That's what we do at Expositor Seminary. These men have been called of God, but they've been entrusted to us, to me and to you, to come alongside of them, so that you can pray for them, you can encourage them, so that you can listen as they try to teach in small groups, in Sunday school classes, from the pulpit, as they endeavor to exercise their gifts and grow in their gifts. We all have a role in being the body of Christ. And Christ has called them to Himself. So that we can have a hand in preparing them for the next phase of their ministry. Hope you understand then why I say there's 500 professors. Because learning life doesn't come just from one person. It doesn't come just from a body of elders. It comes from you. For you encouraging them about what the Lord is doing in your life through their gifts. For you correcting them whenever you see that the ways in which they're ministering are not always helpful for you praying for them 
that as they come face to face with their weaknesses, the struggles and strains of ministry, and they have to grapple with that in their own heart, that you'd pray they wouldn't lose heart. They'd fall at the Lord's feet. They would understand that they are unworthy, but they'd also hear the Lord's continued call in their life. Follow me. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this. Thankful that the example that has been given to us in Christ stands as an example to us. I pray not just for these men as we did earlier, but I pray for this congregation. How grateful we are to be able to have a hand as the body of Christ with all the gifts that you have supplied, the joints and the members energized by your working through us. Lord, we understand that you're working in the lives of these men through this body. We pray that you would do that. May we all rejoice that you've brought this ministry to our midst. May we all rejoice in what you're doing in these men. May we all be grateful for the ones who will come in years to come. And may we all rejoice to see the fruit that will come from this training. Our Lord sets such a gracious and patient example. Help us to have the patience and the grace as men deal with weaknesses, as they refine their skills, as they learn the ropes of ministry. And Lord, may you perfect not only them but us through that process, bringing us all to the place where we are declaring depart from us We are sinful men, sinful women, but also hearing your gracious word to continue following you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.